The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. France is going to the polls with Germany to follow. Italy and Greece could be close behind, not to mention the UK's upcoming surprise election. That's our topic of discussion on this week's episode of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs in the world of finance. I'm your host, Jennifer Saba. On this week's edition, we're handing the mic to our colleagues in London who will discuss the risks, opportunities, market movements, and misconceptions around Europe's critical election season. So this is adapted from a webinar they recorded live at the time, so they may reference things you can't see, for obvious reasons. So now, here's John Foley, Swaha Patnik, Neil Unmack, and Olaf Storbeck. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm John Foley uh, from Royce's Breaking Views. So Europe's voters are being treated to a real smorgasbord of uh, democratic choices um, this year and next. And we've uh, got together some of our uh, Breaking Views opinionating experts to talk through what some of this means for markets, politics, economies and currencies. I'm going to start by throwing a question out to those of you who have joined us today that you can answer while I introduce our team. Who do you think is going to win the French presidential election? So click away and tell us what you think while I introduce you to our experts who include Swaha Patanik, our France guru and also our expert on markets. We have Neil Unmack, who specialises in Italy as well as credit markets. And we have Olaf Storbeck, who is our German columnist. And between them and, and me, I'm the European editor of Breaking Views, hopefully we'll be able to give you a guide on how to survive this nail-biting and at times extremely complicated electoral season. So let's close the polls and see what people said. So it looks like... Perhaps unsurprisingly, 84% of you think that Emmanuel Macron is going to be the next president of France. Now, this, of course, does not come as a huge surprise, does it, Swaha? Because we had the first round of the vote uh, a few days ago, and Macron certainly pulled ahead of Marine Le Pen, who's his chief rival and person on the far right. And if we go to... um, to our, uh, to our first slide, uh, well, our second slide, because our first one is a rather unflattering picture of Marine Le Pen. If we move on to the next slide, you can see that the polls are now showing um, that there is a 94% probability of Macron taking the presidency. Now, Soir, I just want to open this up by asking you, 94%, that sounds pretty conclusive. How could that be wrong? Well, there are several ways. One is actually the voting, just what French voters might do themselves, which is not to bother turning up at all. Marine Le Pen has a very hard core of voters who will turn up come rain, hail or shine. So um, the less everybody else feels inclined to turn up, the, the stronger her sort of bases uh, having its say and having its way. The other thing that could play in is how the other parties endorse or don't endorse Monsieur Macron. The um, two mainstream candidates who stood in the first round on the left and the right have backed him. However, there was somebody else who was on the hard left, called Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who has many of the exact same policies that Marine Le Pen is pushing, anti-globalization, we will protect you from the worst ravages of capitalism, um, we don't really you know, see eye to eye with Europe. A lot of those things are echoed in his 
manifesto, and he hasn't told his voters which way to go or given them any indication. So they may stay at home, they may go for Marine Le Pen if they feel strongly about economics as opposed to immigration. Um, so all of that could narrow that gap further. It's still, all that said, it's a big gap, which, you know, Monsieur Macron could do himself damage. He had a sort of wonderful dinner after the first round uh, at a nice Paris uh, restaurant. That hasn't gone down so well in the public uh, eye. So there are you know, self-inflicted wounds as well. So Le Pen, has some, has some quite strong views. She's got some quite strong plans. She was talking about ripping France out of the euro for one, putting an end to all um, immigration, at least f for a while. Is there a risk that she softens her position between now and the second vote? Yes, she's already positioning herself as a you know candidate for presidency for all the people. So you know, going a bit wider appeal and recognizing that people may be concerned about their savings and stuff like that, which in theory should mean that you shouldn't really hold a vote on that could see you leave the euro. But um, I'm not sure how much she can soften without losing what her core message is, which I will protect you against the ravages of euro bureaucracy and uh, you know. Capitalism. So let's say we wake up and we find the Macron as president. What happens then? Because you've got a, you know, he's a strong figure in himself, but he, he doesn't have a power base. What's he going to do and what's he going to be like as a leader of France? He's centrist, so in some ways he can go both sides and you know draw a few people off uh, from the left, the right, try and find uh, a consensual middle ground to build cross-party support. So this could go two ways. Either the two mainstream parties say, say we are going to go hard and heavy for the legislative elections, here a manifesto, and we stand on our own right, in which case he'll find it hard to build this cross-party coalition, or he goes for the reformist wing of the Socialist Party and the slightly more centrist ground for the Les Républicains, who are on the right, centre-right, and manages to build enough of a cross-party coalition to get some of his core reforms through, at least the ones everybody can agree on. Looking at the way markets have behaved, like Neil, I'll ask you this, that the, the response to the market seems to have been mostly so far relief that the euro is less likely to be dismantled, right, since the first one. What about... The, what about the sort of risk more generally for markets? Like, what, what are you seeing in terms of the, the credit markets, for example, in response to the French? Yeah, we're clearly seeing that the equity markets are up. Generally, credit markets are rallying quite aggressively. And I think that's clearly the market taking out some of the political risk out of the equation. The, the obvious question that raises is how the ECB reacts to that. Now, the ECB has been flooding markets, generally printing money, buying government bonds, buying corporate bonds, giving banks money for nothing for four years. If political risk is being reduced, that may embolden, or embolden the hawks on the ECB's council to push it to withdraw some of that stimulus. I want to come back to the ECB again in a bit, but actually first let's go across the channel to Britain, um, which of course is the su surprise entrance into this like, electoral race because of course we have upcoming elections in the UK as well, uh, set for June the 8th. I actually want to ask another question of those who are listening in. There doesn't seem to be much doubt about who's going to win the UK election. I think the, the Conservative Party led by Theresa May is is uh, currently polling about 46%, whereas Labour, which is the, the, the sort of second party, um, is at 27 So the real question is not who wins, but what kind of effect is this going to have on Brexit negotiations as the UK starts to negotiate its way out of the European Union? So you can see the question on screen is, will a UK election win for Theresa May favour a hard or a soft Brexit? Um, so you've got a few more seconds to vote, although I have to tell you that already the vote is fairly conclusive that people seem to think that there is a, a much more 
probable chance of a hard Brexit. 81% of you think that a Theresa May victory is going to make Brexit harder. So let's talk about hard Brexit. So Swaha, like, what's the case for a Theresa May victory bringing a harder Brexit? One could argue this either way. I'm sort of in, uh, prob- perhaps slightly more inclined to the hard Brexit view, as are the majority of our respondents. You lose the sort of ability for the soft remain rump of the Conservative Party to hold the party sort of hostage with a very small majority. One argues that this is exactly what the hard Brexiteers could do as well. But, you know, having a big majority in Parliament also removes the possibility for the likes of Anna Soubry and the people who have been arguing for a soft Brexit, if you like, to hold the government to ransom and say, well, I won't vote for you. The other thing is, with a strong mandate, it may embolden Theresa May to go to Brussels with a very hard line on what she will and will not stand for. And there's no guarantee that will play well in other EU EU capitals who also have electorates to go back to and who vote for them. You could argue that if if you're of a more optimistic bent, you could suggest that once she's got a strong mandate and a large parliamentary majority, Theresa May will be more free to be rational and to go in and have a you know, rational debate about keeping some aspects of the single market or keeping some aspects of free movement even. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm generally not of an optimistic bent, but I, I do actually subscribe to that view. I think it depends on really what we don't really know much about is Theresa May herself and, and what, is she, um, you know, what does she really want. But if you take the view that she's a practical sort of person and the more freedom and the more flexibility she has within, within Parliament... I think the probability of a more rational, economically rational Brexit increases. And I think also the stronger that she is, the more credible her her threat for the sort of a nuclear option, which is to walk away. Um, And that ultimately should put a little bit of of pressure on Europe, only a little bit. I think I'd agree with you, and she definitely comes across as a pragmatic and rational person. The problem she has is she may end up boxing herself in because she's got to win this election with the majority that she's expected to get. I mean, people are talking about 180-seat majority. Anything like 50 is way above it, what she's got now, but starts looking like a failure when you start building up hopes. Or people don't bother turning up and don't vote Tory in those seats which are marginal. So the risk is she ends up having to lay out a manifesto that boxes herself in even before she gets to their Brexit negotiations with any sort of strong mandate or not. And say on immigration or the likes of that sort of issue, she makes promises that cut her off from making other deals on trade. That's true. The, the, the flip side to that is that at least Labour so far are not clearly articulating their view really on Brexit, which gives her a little bit of flexibility to continue with basic platitudes, which is what she's done up until now. I think the manifesto will be very important, though. Clearly, in order for Brexit to be anything other than a total disaster, let's not use the word success, but in, in order for Brexit to be anything other than a disaster, she needs to keep a free hand to stimulate the economy, to try and generate growth jobs and to um, keep people basically spending. And the more that she promises to do things, for example, to keep pensions high, to keep um, tax benefits for the middle classes high, the more she panders to her Tory electorate in the, in the manifesto and ties her hands, the less flexibility she will have to really manage the economy um, in the coming years. And that, that clearly will have an effect on, on how big a success Brexit is. I want to get a bit crunchy on this. We've got um, our next exhibit is the Brexit Index, which actually, Swaha, you put together, which is, which is an, an index of market indicators that, that gives us a reading on how hard or soft or sunny side up the markets think Brexit is going to be. And, and, and you can see from this where, where a rise in the index basically suggests um, 
a softer Brexit and a, and a if I correct me if I'm wrong here, and a, and a fall in the index suggests that Brexit's going to be a bit harder. And Brexit, according to the markets, has, since this election was announced, got that little bit harder. Can you just t- talk us through, Swahal, what this is measuring and how it's... Well, first of all, the, it, actually, the chances of a soft Brexit jumped markedly to the sort of best chance since we actually had the referendum. Immediately, the snap election was called, and then people have had a rethink. So what this index does is it takes four main things, stock market, uh, CDS, which is the cost of insuring against a British default, and the performance of the domestic focus FTSE 250 relative to the more international focus FTSE 100, as well as sort of the shape of the UK yield curve, which is telling you something about recession and not recession uh, likelihood. Yep, that was the first thing. I think trade weighted value of sterling. Absolutely. They all get even weightings and you basically end up seeing, uh, are these market indicators telling you that the perception is we're going for a hard Brexit? And as uh, the indicators showed, there was a huge jump in soft Brexit expectations after the election. Olaf, um, if you're you're sitting over in Berlin, for example, as Chancellor Angela Merkel is, and you're looking at what's going on in Britain with the British election, and you're looking at, for example, our hard, soft, or sunny side at Brexit index, which I'm quite sure Chancellor Merkel is, how do you read all this? How, does, it, does it matter at all what happens in this UK election? And if so, why? Well, I think it matters from a Berlin perspective because the negotiation stand of the British government will, will be, might, might be influenced by, by this election. I think it won't matter in terms of the concessions Europe is willing to make to, to Britain. Uh, the, the key concerns are Europe is interested in an amicable divorce, so they, they, they want to separate on good terms. The key concern also is to, to secure the, the integrity of the, of the common market and, and basically keep the rest of the club, the rest of the family together, so, which means there isn't a lot of an incentive to give Britain a better deal than it had within the uh, European Union. And the domestic issue is the question, does Theresa May have a mandate, doesn't, doesn't she have a mandate at the moment? doesn't really matter from an outside perception because this is basically regarded as a, as a domestic, domestic matter, a domestic issue within Britain, um, which won't have a big impact on how Europe deals with this. I want to stay on Germany. The third of the big elections of this year is going to be the German election. Now, a lot of investors that I speak to, a lot of companies that I speak to, are slightly nervous about this um, because Angela Merkel has been such a champion of European unity and also just because Germany is such a big economy, it's such an important part of the European picture. Now, you, Olaf, are not that worried about what happens in Germany, I think it's fair to say, in September uh, when Germans go to the polls. Can you just talk us through why that is? And we've got, we've got a slide here showing how the, how the main German parties are shaping up in the polls. In particular, the thing that I think has got people nervous or was getting people nervous a few months ago was AFD, the kind of populist German party run by this woman, Frau Kapetri, um, that seems to be a sort of an, an unwelcome throwback to elements of Germany's history and, and a kind of and a swing to the far right. You don't seem to be that concerned that they're going to pose a, a real threat, right? Yes, I mean, what you have to keep in mind is that due to the German electoral system, these kind of black and white swings like between Trump and Clinton or between Macron and Le Pen aren't basically just aren't possible. You have a parliamentary system and, and, and you usually need several parties to form up a coalition. And if you look at all plausible coalition outcomes, 
you, you either need the Social Democrat or the Christian Democratic uh, Party, Merkel's party, the Conservatives, as kind of the key coalition member. And no matter who, who they team up with, they will basically determine and, and rule, call the shots in terms of, of foreign policy, in terms of economic policy. And th th there's a big consensus still that, that Germany is committed to the European Union to further European integration and, and that the basic uh, terms and objectives um, of, of, of foreign policy and of economic policy, and we will talk about fiscal policy in a bit, uh, I think, won't change significantly. And, and, and the AFD, even as it polled at 15%, is a paria in the in 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 the, in, in the political system. So no other party would form a coalition with them. They even they themselves recently had a big debate if they w were willing to open as a to, to, to form a coalition with other parties. And they uh, the AFD itself decided against it. What does the AFD um, stand for? What does it actually want? Well, it's it's mainly um, basically a, a, a populist, anti-EU, anti-migration put Germany first party. So um, they, they, they have a kind of uh, economic liberal wing, which is fueled by the euro crisis and by this idea they, they want to leave the euro and want, want to get, go back to the Deutschmark. And then they have this really nasty wing, which is, which is in a tradition of, of, of Le Pen and other really far right parties. And this kind of um, far right uh, wing it has become more powerful over the last month within the party. The thing about Germany is that if you believe that the economics and politics are kind of linked, the, the fact that the, even 15% was possible for the AFD in Germany makes no sense, right? Because Germany is, of all of the European economies, is probably one of the nicest to live in right now. If you look simply at things like unemployment, it's been falling, it's low. Germany seems to have nothing to complain about. How is there any room for discontent in Germany? Like how, are, are people unhappy with the way the economy is going? Because from the outside, it looks like it's all going swimmingly. People are fairly happy with the economy, but they've started to take this for granted a bit. Um, so for, for decades, for more than 20 years, um, unemployment was kind of when people were asked, what's the key pressing problem in Germany, unemployment and the economic situation was what people mentioned at, at, as their first and major concern. Um, over the last few years, um, people have, have become less concerned about that and in, in at the same time concerns about migration, especially in 2015, 2016, when, when this big influx of, of uh, war refugees happened, became more of a, of, of a problem. And that, that was what fueled a lot of support for the AFD and this, in the feeling that the government has lost control over the issue. This has changed over, over the last six, seven, eight months where it was, with inflows going down, the, the situation becoming more, more controlled, people not living in these big camps anymore, but getting, getting their own flats and, and starting to get integrated in, in, into the labor market. So um, this has basically peaked and, and has, has gone down, the concerns. If we look more broadly at Europe, I mean, th this all sounds a bit like political risk is kind of receding a bit if we've got Macron in France, uh, if, if Britain sort of, you know, the status quo basically prevails, um, Germany is, is not at terrible risk from extremism. So as political risk um, diminishes, what happens then in the, in the Eurozone? Do we have a more stable Eurozone? Does the Franco-German motor sputter back into life? Um, should we be feeling relaxed about the European economy more broadly? 
Well, I think there's a good hope for, from the point of view of the Franco-German motor, which has been the founding uh, sort of driving force, if you like, of the uh, whole European project. If Monsieur Macron comes in, and I think either German government of either any hue would welcome that. He's very pro-European and has taken a different tack to French governments for the last decades by saying that France needs to do reforms first and get its budget uh, house in order before looking for you know, other measures from Germany. The usual line has been that Germany needs to do something and then France will reform. So this has gone down very well in Berlin and is a good building block, I think, for reigniting some of the momentum behind the Eurozone project specifically, which is what Monsieur Macron wants to do. He's focused on that perhaps a little bit more than the Pan-EU project. And there's a good chance of that. I think, I don't know, Olaf, what you think with either government of, you know, either SPD-led or co coalition or a CDU, CESU yeah. coalition. No, no matter who would, would lead the government, uh, the next German government, the interest to have a strong partner in Paris is really big and... Um, and that with Hollande uh, over the last years, Berlin was really desperate that they were lacking a credible and strong partner in in France. So um, I, the and, and the willingness, I think, to make some concessions to 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 Paris and to to basically show and prove that the German Franco axis is is uh, working and is, is is strong would be quite high. Italy is our fourth leg of this democratic table. Uh, excuse the clumsy. Uh, analogy there, but but Europe and and particularly the spicy meatball that is Beppe Grillo, who's the um, who's the head of the Five Star Party, the European Populist uh, Movement. Now, Neil, Italy's not due to have an election um, this year, but by some people's estimation, Italy is really the the one that we should be watching because when it does go to the polls, that's going to really shake things up. Can you just explain a bit about how we should be thinking about this? Sure. It's it's very hard to know how to think about it simply because the, everything is unclear. The timing of the election, even the ele electoral rules are, are unclear. However, two sort of key developments are that simply the, the persistence of the support for the Five Star uh, Movement, which is a populist, radical movement. It, it's in favour of a lot of good things, like, you know, protecting the environment but it's also anti-capitalist believes in you know nationalizing industry for example Alitalia which has just failed and has an ambiguous but generally negative attitude towards the euro as it's currently constructed the other key trend is simply the uh, the fragmentation of Italian politics outside of the five star so the five star is now polling r consistently above 25% and sometimes in the 30s you even hear talk about much higher uh, potential uh, voting than that. that. That weakens all of the other parties and the other parties are fragmenting continually. So the defeat of uh, the Prime Minister Matteo Renzi's um, referendum at the end of last year has, has left him much weaker. That's on the left and the left is, has in fact split. His party has in fact split since the referendum. On the right you have this very awkward alliance, not a coalition, between led by Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia and, and uh, with, with parts of that alliance which are very anti-Europe, anti such as the Liga Nord. So given the, the weakness of... You know, it's very hard to see, based on the current electoral system, a stable government emerging at the next election. Simply there will be a hung parliament. One of the two things will happen. Italy might go back to uh, where it was before the 1990s, which was simply a series of, a series of very weak governments, constantly changing, not much getting done. Um, or the, the sort of tail risk that people think about, which is simply that the five-star does much better than people expect, 
if you compare Five Star to other kind of so-called populist or or disruptive parties like UKIP, um, like the Front National in France, one of the, one big difference is that Five Star is the biggest party in Italy now, right? It is literally right. the biggest right. political party. Right, and that's and that's really an indication of the. Um, I mean, despite the fact that we've had two prime ministers who had a mandate of sorts to try and reform Italy, Mario Monti and Matteo Renzi, in the last five years or so. It's, that's, that's really an indication of the enduring inequalities in, in Italian, the Italian economy. So uh, north, north and south, young and old, very high levels of youth unemployment. And those issues aren't, aren't going away, and therefore the five-star is simply not, not going to go away. I mean, we, had a, we did a Twitter poll earlier today um, asking which, which was the biggest risk um, to the Eurozone and which country was the biggest risk, and I think the choices were Italy, uh, Greece... Germany, France, and, and last time I looked, the, the, the most popular choice was Italy. So Italy was the biggest risk to the Eurozone. Is that, I mean, could Italy cause the breakup of the Euro, Neil? <laughs> well, how, of course they, they could. There is a probability of that happening. We don't know exactly what that is. I mean, it's a very, the situation at the moment is extremely fragile. It's clear with the current government, which, which has no mandate whatsoever for, for economic reforms, that, that it's basically will be told what to do by Brussels. There is a, a, a high level of um, that that will not resolve any of the problems that Italy has. You know, it's 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 not so much that the five star would necessarily win with a strong mandate to take Italy out of the euro. That the risk is that they are the largest party and that they form a post-electoral sort of alliance with one of the other anti-European parties. So the the Lega Nord is the the two. They're very different. It's it's quite hard to see how they would work as a government. And that ultimately what that means is that. Most Italians would realise that any any exit would be pretty chaotic, and therefore won't happen. Just, to, I want to move on to a kind of a final question: Is it possible that we've reached peak populism, especially if Macron is going to take France, um, and and that this will prove to have just been a part of a cycle that will then pass back into a phase of moderate centralism? Um, if I look at France uh, specifically, I would say no. And it, but however, it depends what sort of time frame you're looking at. For this year, for next year, two-year view, perhaps. The problem, I think, is if we go and look back at Marine Le Pen's father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, there was a huge shock to the system when he came through the first round and stood again with um, Jack Chirac in the second round. And there was outrage, there were demonstrations on the street, and now we have his daughter coming through with a higher share of the vote, equally sort of uh, far-right policies, if anything a bit further on the economic policy front, and there is less outrage. They're going to have a television debate, which Jackie Shirak wasn't willing to engage in with her father. And I think the risk is that the inability of the mainstream political parties to get to grips with what is causing this dissent will generation after generation, if it's not Marine Le Pen, it will be perhaps her niece who takes us through in 10 years' time. The other danger is that you get mainstream parties so fractured and fissured and desperate to get their votes back up, they co-opt these policies. So when you say populism, is it populism of just a party like the Five Star Movement on the National Front, or is it actually populist policies that we're talking about? In which case, no, we're definitely nowhere near peak populism. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Watch this space. We will be writing, thinking about and debating the, the various European elections over the next few months. You can follow us at uh, www.breakingviews.com and our Twitter handle is breakingviews. So look forward to, to speaking again soon and thanks guys for joining us.
That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank my colleagues in London. Thanks to our producers, Bethel Hopday, Andrew D'Antonio, and Liam Proud. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes. And do please share your opinions about our show. Tune in next week for another episode of The Views Room, and thanks for joining us.